Hi guys, before we start today's podcast with Denise, I'd just like to make you aware that a lot of the stuff we discussed, some viewers might find traumatic, so we've put links in the description below. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome back guys to the Bear Podcast Show with me, Sean Scullion, aka The Handsome Stranger, Oman, aka The Bear, Aiden, the face for radio behind the scenes, and today we are joined with Denise Troll. Welcome, Hello. welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Denise, thank you very much for coming up. Um, look... Don't be nervous. We're we're we 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 we'll not grill. We'll not grill you too much. But Denise, how about let, we always go at the very start of the show? We always go back to where you're from, where you grew up, and uh, a wee bit about yourself. Um, so I grew up in a small village outside Balamani. So I'm country girl at heart. Um, we moved quite a bit. Moved from the country to Balamani to Balamina to Antrim. Lived in Belfast briefly, back to Antrim, and then back to village life for me. So I've been over quite a bit. You worked your way into the city and then back, back out of the city. My mum moved us. She moved sort of forward the years through work and stuff. And then whenever we all grew up, she was like, as soon as you all have houses of your own, I'm going back home. And that's what she done. Left us and went back to Balamore. She had the right idea. Mm-hmm. So me and my brother have slowly, we've gone back sort of outside Antrim again, but back to village. <laughs> You're chasing sort of her again. Her. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> and uh, what was it? Did you, what, was it your childhood? Were you grow, do you grow up in Balamai? I, well, started off until I was about seven. I was in the countryside and then in Balamai town itself. But if you ask me where's home, I probably spent most of my life Balamina. Um, If you ask me where am I from? I'll tell you Balamana. I'm a bit of a travelling gypsy, I've established, but I'll tell you Balamana. The accent's mellow for Balamana, hey? That's because it's been everywhere. <laughs> I don't even have an accent. <laughs> well, you're saying about Balamana, so we, we actually chatted beforehand, so that must have been where your love for bikes come from, motorbikes. Absolutely, motorbikes mm-hmm. in the head. It's a family thing. I think uh-huh. it's just, it's impossible to grow up where I grew up. Um, my family are all from we. Be small place that doesn't even have a shop. It's called Bushside, sometimes Clinty Finnan, and that's where Joey and Robert, Joey Dunlop, lived across the road from my granny whenever she was young. So it's impossible not to be involved. But you were saying no road bikes. Road bikes, no love road, road bikes. bikes. No, I haven't got one. No, not allowed one. Not allowed one. My mum is absolutely forbidden it. But you're in the motocross. Motocross. We do a wee bit of just whatever, whatever we can. I think if you offer me a go you, on a bike, do you ride motocross? No. Well, I've had a go, but I'm not very good. We ended up with a thumb injury the last time and a boy, I was over at the TD recently and a boy said to me, do you want to go in the back of Ducati Panagale? And I was like, oh, hi. And my brother was like, absolutely not. I was ready for just jumping on the back. No. Sean's no, in his no element fear. here. Look, look, he is. He loves his bikes. Love bikes. Love, love bikes. I, love I had to get rid of all mine because I was going to get killed on one, to be honest. It's so we, we spoke about it. So I had, I had race bikes and then I had to tone it all down. So I got a Harley thinking it would slow me down a bit. Do you think you'll ever go back? No. This is Sean's midlife crisis, the Harley. Do you think so? This was his compromise. Ah, you know, I'm a family man now. So a Harley. But I still like a motorbike. (laughs) And then he rocks up with a Harley. I'm not deafening you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? Road racing's dangerous, but more people die on a fishing boat a year and climbing mountains than they do on a race bike. And that's statistically correct. Right. I'm going to stop (laughs) you. Because I've had this conversation before. Per person... Power doing it is the is and and fishing boat is one of the most dangerous environments in the world. So it's a very thing. I get these guys on the bikes because I uh, we we've we've been up to the races and we were doing a bit of the media work up in there, and I see the psyche. It's more religion. I when you get Absolutely. to speak to them, it's there. They, 
you take that away from them and that close circuit, they're going to go and do that. On the, they need that 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 part of them, and they're well aware, which I couldn't understand. They're so aware of the risks, and it's nearly like that's what feeds in yeah. to that 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 level of risk is there. And they were like, you know, they're more alive, and and their families have come to terms. Their families are there, but I sometimes just when they justify the st- the figures, it's a it's a it's a highly dangerous sport. There's no two ways about it. But I remember one of them. I think it was one of the writers turned around and says, "Should look at the amount of people that get injured playing rugby player, but there's twenty five thousand times more people playing." That so it's it's the the statistics, but Sean had to get rid of the bikes because you want to see the way Sean would ride these things. Mad, I no fear, no sense. It sounds very very morbid, and I think anybody in the race community like it's a massive family, real big family. But I think everybody will agree. If you were to pass away on a motorbike, I think I'd be more content living life knowing I was either speeding, flying along in a car or a bike, or whatever, than if I died of an illness. I would be absolutely content, and I always say that to my mum, if I'm ever involved in an accident, some sort of high-speed collision, some sort of doing something I enjoy, just be content, knowing it's well morbid, isn't it? But that knowing, is weird. And I think anybody that I know has ever got on a bike, raced a bike, even just been a part of that atmosphere, they're like, if I die on a bike, I'll have been doing what I love. And that is not a cliche thing to say, and we don't say that for the crack. Like, that is hand on heart, the gospel. And mine was the opposite. Mine was like, I am getting rid of the bikes because I'm going to be killed on one. I think I'd rather be killed on a bike than taken by an illness or taken by another person or having my life robbed from me doing something I didn't particularly want. I, I, Strange way to look at it. In my I, head, I'm the, like, geez, that's it, mental. It's so hard to compute the rationale of, of <laughs> bike racers and things, but I yeah. get it. I look, you don't say it out wanting to die, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. if that was to happen, you'd rather go that way than any other way because it's the, the love of your life. Mm-hmm. Well, we, Sean, you happy there? Sean loves to talk B- about his bikes. Bikes are covered. And, and there's no point. He, he can't talk to me about bikes because the last bike I was on was a pushbike and he near died. <laughs> Literally tried to cycle a hill and oh, yeah. that's a good one. So we were we had a rally last week. Um, a really good one, Sean. It was I. So we were doing racky the day before. Okay. It's been so a while we, since I've trained. That's all I want to so say. So we had one. these wee push bikes. So we're sitting around a manor. So literally the start line, and there was this massive hill. So I took off cycling up this hill. Look behind me. Owen was nowhere to be seen. And I was like, "You're right." Oh, and he's no. like, "Nowhere, oh, to, be nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be no. seen. There's an ignorance in me. This was at the start. So I says." <laughs> And he went up with like a fucking whip. And I was like, I am not getting off this bike. So I paddled to the top, got to the top. Holy shit. My chest started tightening up. And we he, were only three corners in. He goes to me. Right. Are you taking this in? And I goes, I can't take fucking air in. <laughs> <laughs> what an e-bike you need. Oh, well, hi. Hi. They were all on e-bikes. They were all on e-bikes. I have a friend sells them. It's a good chance you've maybe seen him. Mm-hmm. They were all on e-bikes. And I was like, you're cheating. And then I started cycling. I was like. How much are they? <laughs> That's but the way to go. Anyway, we'll, uh, we've covered our bikes, but uh, we grew up in, in Balmoney, mm-hmm. and then you moved about. And uh, let's, we're going to go through your story, Denise. So, so when I was a child, um, P1, P2 it became very apparent. I was classed as gifted and talented. I was always very bright, very intelligent, youngest of three. And my mum had three of us close together. It was my brother, sister, then me, and we're all one year apart, so primary one, two, and three. 
And I do not know how that woman coped with us. Primary one, two and three. We were one year apart, literally, like so close together. Jesus. And I don't know how, because I'm sure not so much me, but my brother and sister gave that woman a run around. Um, everybody, if you ask anybody in my family that knew me as a child, they'll tell you, if you sat me in the corner with a book and pen for a day, I'd be happy. There'd be no bother out me. It was just reading, writing, creating, drawing. I've always been quite creative. But, hi, good fun. Good fun growing up. Busy house for your ma. Mm-hmm. So when I was in P2, I had read every book in the school. The teacher had run out of books to sort of keep me, a wee bit of a Matilda, run out of books to sort of keep me occupied. And learning is my favourite thing to do. Mm-hmm. So if you ask people, you know, about going to uni and stuff, I enjoyed it. See, learning new things or spare time. Like I don't watch TV. I watch podcasts. I watch things. I don't even really watch a whole lot. But if I watch or listen to something, it's because I'm choosing to watch or listen to it. I wouldn't. I've no idea what's going on in the world. I've no idea what's going on with the news unless I choose to sort of go and look. So I would rather stick on a TED Talk and learn about people. So fascinated by people. It's the whole psychology and philosophy and why people think the way they think and why they do what they do. That's what keeps me ticking. And did you go on to, to uni? I did. So I first studied primary teaching, but that's not the job I stayed in. I then, when I was studying... Everybody had said to me for years, you should do social work, you should, you know, work in social work. And it's the common misconception that social work is just going in, removing children from homes, which it really isn't. And at the time I was like, no, that's not what I want to do. You know, I want to sort of educate people and make a change and make a difference. And you di- I didn't really think that that's what social work was. So I went down the primary teaching route. And in my last year, I started volunteering for a charity. I was actually in Belfast early morning on a Sunday morning and had never in my life being in Belfast at like seven o'clock on a Sunday morning and had witnessed people sleeping in shop doorways for the first time and I had country girl completely blind to this, did not know what the city was like. Been in the city but never at that time, never seen people bedded down in a shop doorway and it broke my heart. So I started volunteering for a charity in Belfast that works with um homeless people and the they're very high tolerance, low threshold. So everybody and anybody they will provide care and support for. But as you can imagine, it can get quite dangerous. And the part that I was on was street outreach, which is probably the most dangerous. They had a drop-in centre and they had, you know, like hostel work. But the street outreach was you were out in the city centre to two or three in the morning. Absolutely loved it. Like a duck to water, went in and everybody was like, oh, this wee gentle girl. And I learned so much about myself that I was really, really good in crisis. Something kicked off any crisis situation and I was always the calmest person. Still am, calmest person in the room. Good at negotiating, good, just really good at building a rapport with people and calming stuff down. So then I amalgamated the two, always wanted to work with kids. Knew that like kids is were sort of my love. My love is for children and I don't like children going through trauma and I don't like the thought of that and I like the idea of being able to fix and help and prevent any sort of further harm. So I just amalgamated the to sort of the crisis with children and I've ended up in a job that I'm in now so I love them Enjoying it mm-hmm. It must have been you're saying that when, when was that? When when 2018 you, 2017 2018 Because I have been following a lot there recently and uh, you, like you we're from a country town Kirsten's country town yeah. um, You don't see homeless in Kirkstown. Uh, it doesn't so mean to say shattered. there's not, and people might say a thing, but I mean, 
it's one main street, so you will you will know and maybe once or twice. But I mean, it's not a common occurrence. No. But Belfast at the minute, we were speaking to John Gardy, who, who busks in Belfast, and he says, in this new drug, they're like zombies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and it's got so so bad. But in 2018, like I know it was as bad then. I was just trying to, to get an idea of 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 when, and. How long have you, do you still work with a charity or? I don't, I don't, I went on to do my own job and don't, I'm not in Belfast at all anymore. Um, But there was, back then we had, there was heroin and then there was another drug that went into the heroin and that was 20 times stronger and it was killing people and I think we had six deaths of people known to use our service over that winter, like over that Christmas period alone. It was horrible. They're dying mm-hmm. literally in the state, aren't they? Yeah, so we would have had a drug called naloxone and it would you would inject them into the top of their thigh if somebody was in a heroin overdose and that became like a normal part of my job was injecting somebody with naloxone to take them out. It reverses the effects of the, what the chemical's doing in your brain and it only works with opiates, it'll only work with heroin. So somebody was what you would call goofing out, you know, where they're completely unconscious to what's going on around them and you know that their their breathing's going and they're overdosing, like they're dying, they're slowly dying. And we would inject them with naloxone and it is an absolute miracle drug. Like they bounce up with this feeling of it's like adrenaline just goes through them and they're back to life. And I don't think I ever gave myself as much credit for how many lives were saved. You know, now I sit back and I think at the time you don't realise you're saving lives. There's people maybe trying to jump off the West Link Bridge and you're like rugby tackling them to the ground. And it's just constant, you know, people with mental health issues, drug addictions... And I look back and I think, like, how many lives were saved? And that keeps me going the rest of my life. Like, I know there's nothing that I could ever do that was bad that could undo all the good that was done. I think whenever you're in it <clears throat> and you, you're treating it as a job, you mm-hmm. don't you don't think about what you're actually doing. You're so proactive. Because you're just there, you're yeah. like, this is my job to mm-hmm. do. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. But it's like you say, it's only afterwards when you actually sit down, you'll be like, how many lives did I save? Yeah. And you don't think about it whenever you're in it. Mm-hmm. You don't like, realise it's just, it becomes almost habit, mm-hmm. almost habitual that you're going through this and you don't realise just. But you're saying that so routinely, uh, as in I'm injecting someone. Like, I have never, thank God, because that's not something I want to see. But I, like, you know, heroin and all, and, and, and I know it's more common to think, but like I've never seen it or or I've seen people obviously in the state much stupid and I've mm-hmm. been in San Fran and, and seen their homeless crisis but somebody actually at that tipping age where they're about to die yeah. like what age were you? You're, you're in uni? 21? I 22? Was, no I was older because I was older whenever I went um, to uni that time so I was about six years ago about five six years ago so well 25 well then like if you come to the country and then all of a sudden somebody's dying in front of you, like, that's fucking mental. To go from working in a nursery, working with children and working with all these primary school age children to then go on to that, I, a wee bit surreal, a wee bit. But like the but, the first time somebody's taken an overdose and you have to like, do you not be like, but also, this is weird, do you not be th- sometimes like angry you're like, I'm just kicking the ball down. This isn't curing. This is like that. That saved them there, but can be frustrating because you save somebody's life and you see them three days later and they're at it again. 
But the issue I had in Northern Ireland, people talk about there being rehabs and there's not a proper rehab facility. There's detox clinics, but there's not a lot of people go over to England and they'll go to rehab there and it's like 12 week programs and stuff. They come here, they're in here and it's like you can be sent to a detox clinic and say Holly Bell or there's Carlisle House in Belfast. But it's not actually helping the problem. It's a temporary solution. And I think this is where the problem comes to. It's like get them off it now and wean them off and that's fine. But a lot of it's psychology based. A lot of it goes back to childhood. And if you look at adverse childhood experiences, it makes up everything that we do now. If you had faced any sort of adversity in childhood, that's why we respond to how to crisis or even excitement, any feeling we have all goes back to childhood and people don't realise that. And I think that there's not enough therapy work done to cure addiction because that person's feeling a certain type of way and your feelings connect to your behaviours and they're doing that either to escape something or they're chasing a high, you know, and what are they running from or why are they chasing a high? I, the they're masking what the real issue is. Mm-hmm. So addressing the drug use, it's only covering for what's the, the underlying issue. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a common thing in the government don't address and set this up for, and I know this is going to sound awful, they'll die off. Yeah. That problem will die away because it won't continue to stay. It grows mm-hmm. and they think this and it's, 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 it's uh, like you want to see know in Belfast how bad it is and it's mm-hmm. getting to serious levels we don't even have a functioning government so but in America it's becoming a proper epidemic mm-hmm. in, especially in San Francisco yep. the city is just collapsing with the, the problem of, yep. of drug abuse and homelessness and and, and it, it's becoming like that here now but there was I can't remember who done the talk on it and there was like the government don't address these things for the simple reason is they're dying off they, mm-hmm. they they die with the problem. Yeah. So it's they don't need to address it, mm-hmm. which sounds so callous like that is, you know. But you're bound to have seen some awful. Like you, you put oh, yourself. Like a young girl in the middle of that, that's, that's it's dangerous on its own. Mm-hmm. I've had situations where there's a lot, it's just crisis. And people running about at 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the morning is going to be dangerous anyway, Belfast City Centre. Now, some people choose to bed down in a shop doorway because the police do constant drive-bys, they're under CCTV. It's extremely busy at that. Like, it's surprising how busy a place can be in the dead of the night. So some people feel safe, but then you have the people that stay out and they wouldn't take a hostel bed if you offered it to them, and it's social. And it's really difficult to get people to understand that some people are homeless by choice. And people say to me, what do you mean by choice? And I'm like, they're choosing to stay out in the streets because it's a way of life for them or it's socially or they're tapping, they're getting money or whatever. But some people choose to stay out. But we would have had people running about and at that time of night, there's drugs on board, there's violence, a lot of stuff going on. And I remember one night there was a fight and it was two service users and we're there sort of, you don't try to get involved too much but you're there and you're trying to sort of negotiate you can't like physically intervene because we weren't trained for that in that job you were never expected to but I had a boy threatening and he pulled out a needle and he threatened to he was like I'll pin you he's like I've hepatitis C and I'll pin you and he absolutely meant it because we had his records and I knew that he was he had hepatitis he was positive and he was threatening then to jab me by used needle and I was like at what point you know like I'm here sort of trying to help you I'm and a lot of that's quite disheartening yeah. It can be disheartening. 
um, because you are there to help them and trying to explain to somebody, I am only trying to help you. Or when you hit them with an naloxone in the leg, sometimes it takes one, sometimes two, and you do this and they get the burst of adrenaline. I'd say more often than not, they bounce up and they want to hit you. You've taken them out of their buds, you've taken them out of that feeling and they don't like the feeling of adrenaline because that to them is panic and that's unsafe and that's not what they want. And they bounce up even though you've just saved their life and the first thing they want to do is spark you out. That's difficult. That's something that you just sort of have to accept. Uh, fuck. Being threatened. Mm-hmm. Hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. Like, there's only so much you can expect of somebody, but like, Jesus, the self-destructive mm-hmm. nature of, yeah. of that is, like, even for to say that, you know, yeah. when you're trying to help, like, that's... Mm-hmm. I, at that point, I'm, I, I you know... You're better than me because I will be. I, I think it takes a certain type of people to do that mm-hmm. type of job, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like <clears throat> me, I'd be like, fuck them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm here to help you. Yeah. If you don't want my help, well, then yeah. screw you. You're not the police. You're not going to stick them in a cell mm-hmm. or you're not going to do anything to them. You're not the paramilitaries. You're not going to take them for a beating. Like you're there genuinely to help them find somewhere to stay and stop the conflict and stop whatever's going on. And Do you ever get, there has to be, compassion fatigue there that you're trying and you're trying and, and somebody you'd hope for just goes further down the rabbit hole or they die or or mm-hmm. and you're just like fuck am i doing here we have something what we call in my line of work is vicarious trauma and that's where somebody else experiences something but you go through the emotions with them and when you're in any sort of caregiving job or any situation with somebody and they're going through something you're going through it with them and sometimes you get burnout and it's really hard it's really difficult not to take your job home with you you do experience people say you walk out the door and you shut off and sometimes you do and sometimes things the good outweighs the bad and you think of how all the benefits of doing what you're doing and how many lives you saved and how many bad things you've prevented but sometimes it does catch up with you and you are losing sleep and you are thinking could I have done better and see that second guessing yourself that's something that is really really difficult if somebody dies or something happens you think what if I was on shift that night could I talk to them could I prevent them from taking their own life could I have prevented them you know but you can't live like that either you can't sort of think hindsight is a terrible thing and I tell everybody try not to look back and think what could have done different because you will never ever ever change what has happened you can only change the outcome you can only change the future never the past the as a caregiver you get extra days it's important to have self-care like you're saying that it's important to, to make sure 100% that you're okay because I'm massive about that now it wasn't always but now I've learned it all starts with self and then we so then you, you've you've moved away from from Belfast so you were working with the charity how long did you work with the charity? a couple of years uh, a couple of years just enough it uh, it would it would that's what I was saying about the, the compassion fatigue it would it would anger you because like there's nothing like you know who's helping mm-hmm. there there's nothing but you moved away and then you, you you went on to change your profession um did you move back did you move back out of Belfast I didn't live in Belfast at the time. Right. I still lived in Antrim um and traveled to Belfast I do quite a lot of traveling about the country um just for work and stuff so driving's never been an issue but I was back in Antrim and then that's where I met somebody I had just left that job and I met somebody and 
Previous to that, previous, while I was working there, I was with my ex who I'd been with. Like We'd known each other since we were kids. And we're very, very good friends now. Um, but we had quite a turbulent ending to our relationship and it wasn't great. We just outgrew each other and I was going through uni and going through and working two jobs and he was working a job. But I always joke that I outgrew him. He was still into the partying and stuff and I just I wanted the boring, settled life. Just let's make things better. Let's get a better house and a better car and always moving on. So our relationship end was not great. It was really bad, quite turbulent. And my self-esteem was probably on the floor. So I met a boy at that time and he done the whole, oh, you're the most clever girl I've ever met. You are the kindest girl I've ever met. And very, very, very early on, love bombed me. And I only know that now. But at the time I was like, he absolutely adores me. And I've gone from somebody who didn't appreciate and didn't know anything about me. And I now know that he studied me to figure out what I wanted in life. And he apparently wanted all the same things. And anything I said about my life, he was mirroring everything I said and he was mirroring my personality traits and I was like he is the kindest boy in the world and he was always like very for children like something I'm so passionate about is children not suffering abuse trauma harm anything and he was always the same and if he saw somebody telling the child off in the street I remember there was a boy and he's been really rough with their their child and we're out shopping in Belfast and he like confronted him in public because he was like don't you dare speak to you know I don't care if it's your your son or not like don't be speaking to your child like that and I remember always thinking like you're such a lovely person you know your heart is really in the right place time went on and the cracks were showing and I had to constantly show my phone and I remember like two months in and I was on a family holiday and my ex was there because it had been booked like two years previous and I remember I only knew this boy for two months and he couldn't get in touch with me one day. I was lying by the pool, as you do, relaxing on holiday. And it was a family holiday. My family was there. My ex's family were there. And all the kids, it was like there was a whole pile of us. And he messaged every one of my family, everybody he knew on Facebook because he couldn't get in touch with me and being really violently abusive and calling names and be, like absolutely horrendous things he was saying, even to my sister and mum. And they were like, will you stay away from that boy? Like, he's obsessed with you. And I'll never forget my mum saying that to me early on. And I was like, he's not. Like, he just, he had me on this pedestal. And I thought he was doing it out of love. And I was like, oh, he can't manage things. And then as time got on, he started saying he had a really rough childhood. And it turns out, you know, I think he did. But I always made excuses for his behaviour. But there were times, I remember going over one day and I said, listen, I'll not be back. Like, your behaviour is... I've never seen anything like this in my life before. This is not normal at all. You're so fixated on me. And I was over and he grabbed my phone out the driver's side of the door, out the window, and he stole my phone. And that we later established that that was a bargain until it was a brand new contract phone, probably worth a £1,000. So what did I do? Went back to see him. Do you know, there was always something stolen. So it became the point where there was a bank card taken. And eventually I got to be an expert in my own safety. He was always taking car keys, never physically violent, really emotionally manipulative. Um, He was taking car keys or taking bank cards and I would have went to meet him with no phone, left the phone in the car, parked somewhere maybe like half a mile away and said, I'll meet you at such and such. He'd expected me to pull up in the car and I'd have walked around the corner because my car was a mile away with a car key down the sock and no phone and no bank card because I thought, I'm not giving you anything to steal off me. In hindsight, I'm like, what way was that to live? 
And I felt so sorry for him. And he had this dependency on me where you're the one person that can talk me out of crisis and you're the one person that, you know, I can depend on and the one person that cares about me. And I felt this real sense of responsibility for him. And I don't know how to explain that because it wasn't related to him, but it was a real, I'm responsible for you and if anything happens to you, it's my fault. And I don't know how I ever got to that point because as I said, I was an intelligent girl my whole life emotionally intelligent and book smart and I don't know how somebody got me in that position and I think I always say I think my self-esteem was on the floor so now people say oh you love yourself and I'm like I absolutely do and I'll never meet anybody that'll ever be able to manipulate me again because you have to sort of value their opinion first and I I know I'm like if you think that me I do not care but it took a long time to get to that point I didn't realize it was being manipulated I didn't realize and I started, the problem was when I started hiding that I was still speaking to him from my family. Me and my mum are really close, we're like best friends, the woman cannot get rid of me. If I have a day off work, like I'm lying on her sofa getting fed, you know, and I started not bothering with her, not seeing her. Nobody could really hear from me. And if I was on the phone to my mum and he phoned me and my call was engaged, he was like, you're on the phone to a man, show me now and I'd have to screenshot calls. And this was a ridiculous amount of times a day or if he was on the phone and he could hear a buzz from my phone. So it came to the point he'd ring and I'd put my phone on silent just to prevent the conflict, not because it was doing anything wrong, not because it was guilty, but just to prevent it. So then he'd be on the phone and he'd text and he'd say, why did I not hear the buzz? You've put your phone on silent. So, so, so tuned in and so, so emotionally intelligent he was. Um this went on there was times I was falling asleep on the phone just to console him that I wasn't like you'd fall asleep at 11 o'clock at night I don't know if he thought I was going to pull my glad rags on and go out partying or what he thought I was going to be doing but I'd be lying falling asleep on the phone and he'd say to me you're pretending I used to fall asleep on video call there's a lot of this even that I don't tell my mum there's a lot of it I'll never talk about because of how extreme it is and I it's nearly embarrassment you think people are going to look at you and say why were you falling asleep on video called a boy every night? Like, you're bound to unknown. Did you not just leave? Why could you not have just... And he never lived with me. It was never in my house. We never sat and had dinners. It was always... I'd have went to see him on my terms for my safety. And I used to always say, can you not just behave yourself? Like, just catch yourself on. Stop living the life the way you're living. And I can't describe him any other way other than wild. He just... A wild lifestyle. Always in trouble. Police, other people. Just always bringing conflict. And if I left him or just said, like, I can't even be friends with you anymore, I'd have had the threats of suicide. And I used to always say, this is going to be my fault. Or I'd have had blackmail. Or I'd have had him telling people this about you. He used to write statuses about me. that Just loads of nonsense. And I used to really care. And I think it's built a real toughness in me. I used to write stuff. And I used to, do you know your ego where you do think, I care what people think and... People are going to think I'm this bad girl and I've done all this on him and he's the victim. And see now, if you said to me, I'm going to post on Facebook and say, you just robbed a bank and killed a man in the process, I'd be like, go on ahead. And that isn't really a way to live either. But once you let go of that ego and what people think, you cannot be harmed by what people think. You can't be harmed by people's opinions. And I think it's just another safety measure for me. It's just a way I keep myself safe by not caring at all. Denise. Um, some of us were, were, I'm going to ask you back and I don't want to be praying but 
you're saying there, um, people will be listening to this and, and you're embarrassed to say, don't be embarrassed about anything. Yeah, you're going to be, a lot of things you're saying, there's going to be so many people, and that's happened to me. Yeah. That happened to me. Yeah. Or I'm going through this. Mm-hmm. This isn't, there's, you know, this isn't a one-off, this is, you're the only person ever, and oh, how did this happen to me? There's yeah. so many people, the, the, you, you you made a term there and I want to ask you at the very start love bomb that's like a whereas compliments and you know just absolutely sure you with affection but were they, you were you just out of your relationship then mm-hmm. two months out of it low mm-hmm. okay. self-esteem was on the floor and that is when it happens and I have learned now it's not anything you're doing wrong it's they seek out people who have a kind nature, who have a caring nature, a bit of weakness. And you imagine, for example, there's two women in a bar and a man goes up and he's like, oh, I'll buy you a drink. And you're beautiful and showers her with compliments. And say, she's like, absolutely not. I buy my own drinks. Thank you. And that's maybe a woman with boundaries who's like, I'll not be easily sort of convinced. And then sitting beside her could be a woman whose self-esteem is maybe a bit low. And it's taken me a long time to learn this. Self-esteem is maybe a bit low and she's like, oh, I've never had somebody call me that or I've just got out of a relationship and my partner didn't call me that or here's somebody who does really like me. What if this person's really like connected to me and start telling you earlier on and you're like, yeah, okay. And it's boundaries from day one and they realise a weakness in people from the first minute I meet them. They're predatory in nature. Absolutely. But even as you said, mirroring, you're saying as in... Kids, family, mm-hmm. settling mm-hmm. down. You know, if somebody's on the same page as you, yeah, you obviously have a tighter bond there. You Absolutely. feel you have a tighter bond. Yeah. So if somebody's reassuring you and everything, what you want, mm-hmm. well, then you're going to feel closer to that person. He did say that to me at the start. It was, oh, I, we have this special bond. We have this connection. And somebody tells you that, you believe them. Psychologically, that is one of the first ways to get somebody to fall in love with you. It's a psychological fact is by telling them, I love you and you love me and the person's brain starts to believe it and it isn't love it's tactics it is tactics and it's manipulation to get what they want we have this special connection and it probably wasn't even it was just their mirror and your behavior you think it's magical it's a very very and we're talking about this as you look back obviously at the time you were not aware that your self-esteem was low you obviously mm-hmm. know how you were feeling you weren't aware that they were doing this but also something that from what I understand of this and now it's hard this is it's hard for me and Sean here because I would like to think we are 10 monsters it's hard sitting here but from what we know is the behaviour is collecting information at the start find out what it is you wanted kids you wanted this comfort finds out that information first and then relays it as that's what he wants they absolutely study you and mirror it, and that's the only way I can describe it. So, it, and like this, the the when you were talking about the holiday, Jesus, I would say you were nervous about going on that holiday with oh, the dynamics, gosh. let alone I, before I was this. Dreading it, and it's just because I'd been booked like a long time previous, and I was like, "We'll go, and everybody will enjoy it." And I took myself up. There was a couple of houses, but I took myself to the top floor of the house that I was in um, and left. Like, my ex was downstairs and my like mum was in a room downstairs and stuff. And I took myself to the furthest, although I still do that anyway. I'm a wee bit of a, I like my own space. 
But I reassured him and I spent a lot of that holiday in an upstairs house. There was like a balcony in the upstairs and I spent a lot of my holiday there away for 10 days and you're the segregating yourself to please somebody who's not even in the same country as you. But two months, like I suppose uh-huh. it was an intense, the, the start was, I take it, you've seen each other a lot. Not even, not really. I, a lot of it was blackmail early on. And I don't know why I even still stayed then because he would have rung jobs on me. He would have phoned like, I changed like places of employment a couple of times and he rung places and would have made allegations against me. And like, oh, I'm ringing your nursery now. And I was like, you can't ring a children's day nursery. You what? He, he, he rung he, your place of work he would have, uh, to make done, up stories about you? He's done that, I think, three times in three years. He done that mm, to make up allegations about me. And I was really terrified because then he was like, oh, and I'm getting a solicitor. And I don't know what he was ever going to actually get a solicitor to do on me because I don't, I didn't do anything, but it was, oh, I have my solicitors building the case against you. I remember this ta- this period of time where I was really, really afraid to like do anything or be seen anywhere or on social media in case I was portrayed in some bad way. And I don't know what he was threatening me with, but there was always something there was always he something. He obviously established some fear that you had that this was the career you wanted to build and that, that by saying these things yeah. would harm that. Mm-hmm. So he obviously established somewhere that he could scare you. Yeah. But I can't. What the fuck? He rang. You're working in a crash mm-hmm. and he rang up. Like what sort of allegations? Uh, that I shouldn't be working with children and basically just said that I was dangerous um, now we obviously get like regular police checks and stuff and most of the people I worked with were friends and it wasn't taken seriously, you know, at any time with any workplace because of the way, you know, you only had to have a conversation with them and they were every single time they were saying to me, this is not normal, like you're being harmed, you need to get the police involved and every single time I didn't and I would never phone the police on him and would never, never have done anything to cause him harm because I cared more about his safety than my own. And I don't know how it ever got to that stage, but everybody around me could see it. They were saying that's normal. And my friend used to say, like, why are you on FaceTime to him every single night, proving where you are? Like, that's not normal. And I was like, but I'm okay with it if it keeps him reassured. Like, you will bend every part of your personality to suit somebody if you think. Did you pull away from friends and family? Massively. So you didn't have to continue to justify what he was doing? Yeah. And that that separation is a, is a is a key in lots of manipulation and abusive relationships. The because you draw strength, you're mm-hmm. close to your mum, yeah, sister, your brother. People draw strength from mm-hmm. people that's close to them, so yeah. they do everything mm-hmm. in their power to separate you, yeah, to weaken you, mm-hmm. so that the control can be easier to maintain. Yeah. But I don't want. Just because we're shocked, Denise, I don't want you to shy away from telling us the details because it it what you're saying to me is shocking, but it's not shocking to the people that's there. The, the, yeah. This level is not unheard of. It's co- common in abusive relationships. People never talk about it and they never disclose, even if they come out of an abusive relationship and they, and, and they get away. Like, as you said, you didn't fully disclose the mm-hmm. level 
of control, manipulation and abuse to your to your wallet because you're not hundred percent sure why being intelligent and, and, and you allow that to happen. And also you don't want to hurt them either. Yeah. You know. But I think and I and I don't mean this in a weird way, I think you being so and brave to talk about this here and say this, so many people are going to be resonating right now and they might be having to show their phone tonight. Yeah. They might be having a screenshot. They might be having to explain where they were. Yeah. How long they were away, what they were doing, who they were talking to, what it was. And they might start from listening to you say, shit, I'm, I'm, I'm already here. I'm already at yeah. this point. But it continued on then. It yeah. didn't, it didn't, that wasn't the, it continued on then, it obviously got worse and mm-hmm. you were getting these threats more and more. Yeah, so it became where my relationship with my ex, who I'm now friends with, we'd been together years, we were friends long before we were together and we should have been able to have, you know, an amicable relationship. There's kids involved and stuff too. So it drove a massive wedge between me and him and he would have done things and contacted him and said oh she's here and doing this and my ex would have contacted me and being like are you serious you're there and I'd be like no I'm sitting I'm in my mum's you know like and and I would actually have been in my mum's and then I'm having to prove to him and I'm like I'm now proving to two people and then it got to the point I'd have been at work and there would have been lies told oh she's here he would have done it I'm telling your mum you're with me and then I would have had to prove then to my mum as well. Now, not because she asked to. My mum is very of the nature still to this day. You do not have to prove anything to me or anybody. She's really against that. And if I say, no, I'm in work, and see if I even send out of habit. Sometimes I do. I'd be like, no, I'm on my way home from wherever. And I'll send like a screenshot or a saving of a map or a live location or something. And she is constantly reminding me, like, you don't have to do that. And especially not to me. So I would have then been competing with anybody questioned me and I was automatic proving it. There's one thing I couldn't stand at the time and that was being called a liar. And if you had said to me, oh, you're wearing black socks today, I'd have had the trainers off and showed you know I'm wearing white. Like Because I just couldn't, just saying it wasn't enough, I had it instilled in me that you're lying constantly. And I absolutely hate it being accused of being dishonest because it's not who I am. But everything was questioned, and even when it wasn't questioned, in your own head, you were trying to prove it. See, see, just cheering all that as well, though. Was there at any point you were like, "I need to get all contact stopped"? A lot of times. Or and, and did you did you try to like, I stop all contact? I tried so many times, and there were times I was like, "Listen, I will not interact with you again." And I always told them first, and ever I would have said like, "I'm blocking you," and I would have said, "We're in the conflict cycle here. I can't keep going round and round in circles, victim, persecutor, rescuer." Over and over and over again, I said, I can't keep doing this. And I would always have told him. I would never have just cut contact and said nothing. And it would have lasted like two days maximum, sometimes a week. And then straight back where there would have been a suicide attempt or there would have been something, you know, arrested or Ada Fungi from Macabre. I've been put in remand. I was fighting somebody in the street and it's your fault. And I'd be like, oh my God, that's my fault because I started an argument with you. And in your head, you do think, and when somebody mistreats you for a period of time, you do begin to believe that it is your fault. If they tell you this is your fault, like I done this because you made me do that, you absolutely take the blame and you think maybe it is. And that whole love bombing comes when somebody plays with your emotions. They don't just play with your feelings. They play with the chemical imbalance, you know, in you. So you have 
the stress hormones cortisol and then you have dopamine up here and they're going up and down constantly and you're getting the highs and the lows and they'll keep you in this constant state of stress where you are so chemically imbalanced between endorphins, dopamine and cortisol and you will just be longing to go back up to the high again, back up to the happiness and they'll give you a wee bit every now and again and you constantly think, but I know who that person was, he's the loveliest boy in the world and he adored me and he's just having a hard time and because I know he can be that, this isn't the real him. But it's the opposite. That is the real him. And he was acting that. And that's the hardest thing to get. I think if somebody had sat me down and said, I've gone through this too, I would have said, oh, but he's different. I can change him because I know the real him. And you hold on out of hope that you can change them. And for me, a lot of it was fear. If he dies, it's my fault. And I thought that's how it would have ended. Yeah. See, see you're just saying about McGabry. I'm just trying to paint a picture. Was he in McGabry or was he making up lies about being there? Oh no, he would have been. So he, he would have been in just silly things like yeah. three months here and a couple of months there and in and out for stupid things, fighting the street. Just because I was just ridiculous. thinking there, he, he sounds like a kind of guy who would lie about something like that just to drag mm. you back in again. No, he would have so phoned me. He was me actually then in and all. Been in. It would have been I need clothes and I need money, and mm. that's another thing. He became really financially dependent on me, so I worked. He didn't, and if he said to me, "I'm hungry." I would have gone on just eat and send him food to the house and thought nothing of it. And this kid had maybe been six days a week or I need this spot and he had got himself a flat and I helped him furnish the flat and stuff. And I think now, like, what were you playing at? Like, you know, going to work do you to think financially looking, support somebody. Do you think looking back now, just on it, um, why did you feel like you always had that care and need towards him? Like, is there, is there something that sticks out and you're like, that is why I done that? Because... Of you actually going out and helping the likes of the ones around Belfast, it, it, was it something like that at that time? You have that care and need in you, and you just seen yeah. him as somebody who needed you, and without you, I he am, was never going to survive. Yeah, naturally, I am a healer. Like I have healing qualities. I, I'm always the one. You could be in a house party, and I'll be the one in the corner, and somebody's telling me their life story, and I'm going through it, and you know, I just attract. But I, people have problems, and I just always talk through but there's ways of inspiring people they don't need to become dependent on you and he was very 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 dependent on me at that time and it was that sense of responsibility I can't be responsible of taking life and he was constantly reminding me if I die if anything happens to me if this happens to me it's your fault and I think that absolutely terrified me because I did care about him genuinely cared about him but I didn't want anything bad to happen to him and even if he you know, it got hurt in any way by self, by others. I had this, it's empathy. I would have had a feeling go through my body as if somebody had harmed me quicker than if somebody had harmed me. Like I would have preferred it to have been me because I'd have been like, oh, I can handle it, but he can't. Which is a really, really sad way to live. Like I was absolutely sacrificing myself all day, every day for him. But. Denise, are you one of these people that see the good? In every person and think that everyone, because you mind, there's traits you're saying there, and it reminds me very much. Like, I, I would have an argument with my wife, she, she's a counselor as well, and, and she sees the good in everyone. And she was involved in projects with rehabilitating prisoners and all, and she would see the good in everyone and think, you know, everyone, and, and if, as you're saying, like feeling their pain. There's a there's a self sacrificing part of you 
when you do that because there's not good in everyone. And, and I don't mean that there is good in everyone, but not not everyone can be helped. Yeah. So when you see that person, was it you thought there was good in him that mm-hmm. you could help bring out, but it never, it never did? Yeah, so there is a quality in me that I think it's easier for me to understand why somebody has acted the way they have and what place they're coming from than it is for me to understand how is this person able to hurt me. It's able. It's easier to say I understand why they hurt me and I can look deeper into that and I suppose that's the therapeutic side of people who have caregiving careers. You can understand the place of where they're coming from but evil isn't, you're not born evil and I always maintain this, like even mental health issues and stuff, nobody's born evil, evil is not intrinsic, it's something that's created, it's fashioned in you through life experiences or whatever but what happened to me after that was a choice, that wasn't mental health, it wasn't drugs, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't anybody else's fault, that was an act of choice to hurt me that time. Well tell me Denise, see going through all that there and obviously you couldn't get out of that cycle with him, was he Was he ever like obviously taking the phone and wanting to see you and FaceTime and everything else, that's all emotional, mm-hmm. was he ever violent with you though? So when I eventually did block him for the final time, I something had happened him crisis in his life and the first person he came to was me because I talked him out of you know whatever and reassured him and everything's going to be fine and done the whole comfort blanket and fixed everything physically emotionally financially for him and just was the fixer so one day something happened and I remember meeting up with him where he was and I remember feeling so sorry for him and for the first time ever I was not scared and I didn't have a backup plan and I didn't have this need to be safe. And I said, well, come, I'll come with you to the flat. And nobody knows this because I don't actually talk about this. Um, I haven't even told my mum this, but I went with him to clean the flat and the place was upside down, blood everywhere, glass everywhere, horrific. And I said, I'll do this. And at some point we were going in and he ushered me into the bedroom And when he went into the bedroom, the demeanour changed and he closed the door. And he was like, you're not fucking getting out now. And the face just changed, softened from this wee boy who was crying and soft and vulnerable. And I, do you know, you just want to hug them and you just want to care for them. And the face hardened as soon as the door closed. And I looked on the back of the door and the handle had been removed off the door. So you couldn't open the door from the inside. And when I ran to the window, the window had been locked. This was a preconceived trap to get me into a flat. So I had fallen hook, line and sinker and I remember thinking, oh my God, how are we going to get out of here? And I shouted and I screamed and he punched me so hard in the nose for the first time. Really, really hard in the face. And I remember it wasn't pain, it was pins and needles. It was like nerve pain, it was tingling down my face. And I looked at him and he was like, now you're going to watch me kill myself. And he started to put coat hangers, wire coat hangers, and he was doing them in the wardrobe. And he was absolutely adamant that I was going. He said, "You've watched me suffer now. You're." He was like, "I'm going to see you suffer." And he wanted. I don't know if he was going to take his life, or I don't know if he wanted to scare me. And I remember hugging him and begging and pleading, using humour, using every tactic I ever had in crisis 
for people who I wasn't emotionally attached to and I used every tactic I had ever learned on every training course and he crumpled on the floor and started crying and whatever I had said had worked and he softened and was like I love you so much and all this and I was like right we'll come out and we'll get a drink of water I was like I feel like I'm gonna faint and we went out to get a drink of water and he I had a cardigan on and I remember just taking off. I was assessing, am I going to get to that front door quick enough? Am I going to, there was a hallway. I remember thinking, am I going to get to that front door quick enough before he grabs me? And I had like a long cardigan and I took off and he grabbed it off me. And I had on like a wee, like crop top, you know, I wouldn't probably wear in public. And I remember having to bolt down them stairs, but it was like a second floor flat. And there was also a lift and he got in the lift and I ran down the stairs. But I jumped over banisters of the stairs to get away because this is the first time he'd ever hit me. And I was like, oh, we've gone from dangerous to dangerous, like life threatening dangerous. And being trapped is something I could not handle. Like I genuinely thought one of us were dying that day and I screamed and shouted. And for him to hit me as a result of screaming, I was like, we can't scream now because you're going to end up dead. And it's whatever... I could do to stay alive so I ran down the stairs don't know how I got out the door in time don't even know how I got down the stairs I'll never forget the bruises over my body the next day and I sprinted through the town to get back to where my car was and was like what the hell just happened I remember the lift beeping but the downstairs door for the communal area for the flats it was electronic as well so you pushed a button and had to wait for the door coming open and I heard the lift beeping and I was like I never he's beating me down here in the lift before I get out this door but I bolted it and I was like never again and that was that and I said to my mum like I'm coming to stay with you for a couple of weeks like I'm not I can't you know be near him or whatever and that was that I changed phone numbers and I absolutely meant that and then a while later um long long enough time later uh randomly one day I had been out with friends and we'd had a lovely wee day and walked kids around you know the gardens castle gardens in Antrim and I remember driving home and I got home about seven o'clock and about half seven I was on snapchat to my wee stepbrother having a conversation everything was fine and I had just sliced a pizza downstairs had made a frozen pizza and by quarter to eight I heard a knock at the door my front door banging and my wee Jack Russell going absolutely buck mad and my heart dropped upstairs and I was like I know who that is now he had found my house initially by walking around the village until he found my car that's how resourceful this boy was and that's the level of safety I was living a double life I was like you can't you know ever be near my house so initially that's how he had found my house so I looked and I had called my friend and messenger now the doors were locked and I called my friend, I don't even know why I had the doors locked, because I never locked doors. And I rung my friend and she saved me so many times in situations with him where I'd phoned her and said my location should have been there in the car, like no problem. And she absolutely could not stand him and said to me one day, like, he will kill you if you continue to have anything with him. Like, that's not love. He's not doing that out of love. Like, you are a source of money, of support. Like, you are doing everything for him and he needs you. It's not out of loving you. So I knew that that was the one person I could depend on. She knew every part of the situation. And I rung her and I said, ring my ex and ring my mum and ring the police. He's at my door. And she was like, I'm on my way. And she must have done the whole phone call and everybody. He shouted through the door to me 
um, will you come and talk to me? I have a taxi waiting outside. And he was like gesturing across the street. But I don't know to this day if there was a taxi. A few months previous, I had actually rang every taxi company in that town that he had moved into to tell them because it was near enough to me. And I had rang them to tell them if somebody from that address or that street asks to come to this village, don't let them because I would be at risk. So I don't know if there was a tax. I don't know if he clicked on. But that level of even trying to keep yourself safe isn't isn't normal. Nobody should ever have to do that. So he was at the door anyway. And I got downstairs and I said, listen, I'll unblock you if you go away. Like you're not supposed to be in my house. You're making me feel unsafe. I promise I'll unblock you and I'll have a phone conversation with you if you leave. And I could have been easily hooked straight back into the thing again out of fear. Like, I'll never escape this. And my reluctance as well to phone the police on him. But this was the first time I ever agreed to let anybody phone the police or ever ask somebody to phone the police. So I had it in the back of my head. There's half a sense of safety here. And he said to me, I want to see your phone. You must be going out with somebody new. You have a new relationship because that's what it always comes down to. You're going with somebody new and started calling me names and he's like, show me your phone, show me who you've been messaging or I'm not leaving. And I got this sense of like, who do you think you're talking to? And this sense, I'd been away from him for so long and realised like, will you catch yourself on? And said a few choice words and was like, take yourself off my doorstep to fuck, basically. I was like, away you go, I'm not doing this. I am never, ever going to be involved in this again. This wasn't somebody to feel sorry for. He was just being horrible. And he was like, is that right? And he lifted something at my front door, which I now know to be, do you know, a stone, like a big boulder, and it's got the house number painted on it. He had lifted that and he'd run round the back of my house and straight through the patio doors, smashed straight through, came flying up the hall. It was like something out of the Terminator, the way he came through the door. And I was fumbling for the car keys that were on the side table in the hall. So I tried to get the keys in my hand. He ripped them out of my hand and instantly grabbed me by the hair and trailed me down the hall, but the hall was covered in glass. It was tile floor from the front door to the back door, so the place was just slippy glass all over the show. The place was an absolute mess. The dog was going hysterical. It was just chaos. And he lifted the knife from the kitchen that I'd sliced the pizza with and instantly struck me in the back of the head. Here, so he's immediate, like no no hesitation, no thoughts, no nothing. Started calling the usual, you're a whore, you're a scumbag, you've done this and me, you've done this, you've messed up my life. I hadn't done anything other than remove myself from his life to keep myself safe. And I tried to keep reiterating that to him. So I had anemia, have anemia, and I was saying to him at this point, didn't even scream, didn't even feel the pain, just... The first thought in my head was, you silly wee girl, you stupid wee girl. And I thought, like, when people talk about your life flashing before your eyes and your death experience, it does. And I thought about everybody in my family. I thought about my neighbours. I thought about the amount of people it would affected. I had myself wrote off dead and buried. I was like, this is the day I die. And I should have kept myself safer and blamed, like, myself in an instant there was probably about 20 seconds gone by and I had like 30 years of thoughts fly through my head and I thought about every child I worked with every young person my own kids my own family my own everybody and I thought how much this was going to affect everybody the whole wider community and 
typical me was thinking of everybody else. But I said to him, listen, I'm losing blood here. It was a massive, massive stab wound to the back of my head. And I said, I reached over as calm as anything to the cooker and grabbed the tea towel that was hung in the cooker. And I started holding it to the back of my head. And I said to him, listen, nobody knows this has happened. Like I could have slipped and fell. And I was losing like the tea towel had filled up and I had to get a second one and the blood rate was extreme. And I said to him, if you leave now, the police won't know, the hospital won't know, like nobody needs to know that this happened. And he was like, you think I'm fucking stupid and was swearing and he was like, where's my phone? And he had dropped his phone on the back doorstep on the way in and he started looking for that. But at one point he had sat the knife down. And I threw the knife into the washing basket and he lifted another. So he struck me in the front of the head on my hairline here, scar about an inch, but it it was more a hit. It wasn't a stab, it was a hit. And it split me again and I was like, this isn't going to stop. And he kept just grabbing me by the hair and he was trailing me different parts of the house. But when you went out of that kitchen, there was a downstairs toilet and it's no windows, it's just a door, you know, a simple toilet, toilet sink, wee small room. And he tried to trail me in there and I do not know to this day where I got the strength from. This boy's like, I'd say 16 stone. I was eight and a half stone at the time. Like he's nearly double my weight, probably double my weight. Tall, strong, heavy, angry, full of adrenaline. And he could not trail me into that downstairs bathroom. I do not know how. I was like, if I go in there, like I'm never coming out. And at this point I already thought I'm going to die anyway. So he trailed me up into the living room head absolutely pouring with blood and he started to stab himself in the arms with a barbecue skewer so you know a metal fork two prongs mm. he would sort of like a big thing um he started to puncture his own arms with that just pure crisis but had control of the whole situation the whole time so i then started crying panic and screaming he's hurting himself and i in my head for the first time I thought I didn't think for you for the first time I had this feeling where the first time in my life I hated somebody the first time in my life I had that anger and I had that real disgust for somebody and it wasn't out of I can understand why you're doing what you're doing I just kept thinking this is control you have control of this whole situation and when he hurt himself stabbing himself in the arms I thought you're building the case because you're going to counterclaim me. If the police ever come in, you've killed me out of self-defence. I've stabbed you with a, you know, and I thought this is the route he's going to go down. And I'm very, very surprised it didn't. But he trailed me up into the living room then and he started saying that he would he would never harm me, he loved me and he would never hurt me and grabbed me by the face and he never wanted things to be the way they were. And then he said, but you've went back to and he was talking about my ex and he had a real hatred for him. No reason to, but had a real hatred for him. And he punched me so hard in the face after saying that he would never hurt me. Punched me so hard in the face that I remember stuff flying out of my nose and hitting the wall. And to this day, like I spat onto my hand and I thought it was the grizzle of my nose. And he'd broken three teeth just by punching me so hard in the face. And he hit me multiple blows to the head. And I remember saying... I don't know if you've ever played Call of Duty and there's like a flashbang grenade and you hear a bang and you see a flash and the ears ring and there's nothing else. He was hitting me blows to the head and that's all it was. And I was like, I am going to die. And it was 
constant. And then I realised it was like teeth were coming out and that's how hard he was hitting me and parts of my nose had collapsed. And he sat me down. I heard a voice outside and I heard Denise and it was my friend that I had phoned. It was her boyfriend and I like recognised the voice and I was like, somebody's here. Thank God for this. Like, even if I die, he's getting caught. You know that he's not getting off with it. Like somebody is here. Like the call wasn't ignored. And he sat me down behind the living room door. And he was drifting in a calm, calm and chaos. But at this point, he became more calm. And he was like, you sit behind that door. And whenever they come in, if you think that you can move quicker than I can to get out that door, this is going in your neck. And it was the barbecue skewer. He was still holding the two-pronged fork. So the dog was barking and barking and barking and barking. And she hadn't left my side the whole time. And she was sliced in bits. I don't know if it was glass or if she had been injured. Still to this day, I don't know. She's just covered. And the blood was everywhere. And... Because she was barking so loud, it was stressing them out. And we would call that a setting condition, something that makes a situation. And it could be a room being too warm, it could be noise. It just makes people reach crisis way quicker. And she was barking and it was obviously really stressing them, which is part of the reason I, like, I still hadn't screamed. I still hadn't shouted for help. I didn't raise my voice. I think because I knew that the last time I'd done this, he had punched me so hard for it. So I was like, I'm not doing anything. I'm not playing in his hands. I'm not putting a foot wrong. I was negotiating with him and again cracking jokes with him. And he stabbed me in the leg with a barbecue skewer because the dog was barking and said, Will you shut that fucking dog up? So then he told me to sit behind the living room door. He used my phone to phone 999 and said, I have a hostage situation here. And they asked who he was and he hung the phone up like he wouldn't tell them who it was or the address or the details and they phoned back. Um, now my, I was really confident in the fact that my phone's registered. Police know my address, you know, they're bound to, like, work and stuff and the phone's registered to me. The police will definitely know that that's coming from me. So even if my friend hadn't phoned the police, like, they'll know now. So it was just constant reassurance. And they rang back and whenever they said, what hostage do you have? I think he actually gave the address. But when they asked who the hostage was, he looked me dead in the eye and said, Bin Laden, and nearly laughed. And I was like, is this a joke to you? I was like, what are you trying to achieve? And he said something about a negotiator coming. And I was like, we aren't in a film. This isn't the movies. This isn't a bit of fun. This isn't a bit of crack, a bit of a laugh. Like, what are you at? Like, why are you even thinking that this is in any way amusing or humorous or whatever was going on and I, I got frustrated at this point and I said like what is your goal what are you trying to achieve and I, I say that with everybody in life like people do things and I'm like what is that going to achieve like what is the goal here how can we work towards the goal and I said what is the goal and he didn't have a goal he wanted a negotiator he was like tell them to send a negotiator and I was like to negotiate what just really really farcical behavior and I know people on substances like I know if you had a pint of beer and you had a conversation with me, I'd know. Like I just naturally pick up. I know if somebody's under the influence of drugs, anything. And that boy was stone cold sober and not under the influence when he came to my door that night. So then he told me to sit behind the living room door because we created this hostage situation. And at this point I was going along and I was biding time and I was thinking nearest police station to me. And in my head I'm calculating like how safe I am. And he... 
I sat with myself behind the door. So if somebody tells you to block a door, your body position naturally tells you to sit with your knees up to your chest. And this was me cooperating, not keeping myself safe. But I, you said that's your strongest position to be. And he said, do you think I'm fucking stupid? Put your feet out flat. Now, the living room was carpeted. So if somebody had pushed the door from the other side that I was sitting against, I'd have just slid across the floor. None of this made sense. So because I'd sat with my knees up, he thought I was making an age out of him in some sort of way. I do not know. And he pushed my legs down flat and stabbed me in the other knee for sitting the wrong way. And I was like, this isn't this isn't even funny. This is like beyond serious. My head was pouring my blood. The pain started coming. I didn't know the damage had been done to my face, body, anything. And I was getting really, really dizzy. And I kept saying to him, like, I'm faint. And I felt like you are going to lose consciousness here. I do not know why I wasn't exhausted. Do you know when you feel drained and depleted? That's the point I'd got. And from start to finish, I think I was in that house alone with him for 45 minutes. So I seen what I now know to be a policewoman was standing with a body-worn cam. I seen the light through my living room window, through the blinds. And I was like, right, it's okay. And she had witnessed part of it um, through the window, so I don't know if there's evidence of that. And they shouted his name. And he was like, oh, come on round the back, the door's open, as calm as anything. And I was like, how have we just gone from that to this? I was like, you're actually making a complete joy out of me now. It's like you don't value my life or you don't value human beings at all. Um, and I still thought, like, I'm they're not even going to get in this door. He's going to stab me in the throat with this thing, like he said. And I didn't think that I would get out. So he's all about self-preservation, always has been. So whatever he can do to maintain his own self. And the police came through the door. And I remember there was like, load of male police officer voices at the other side of the door and they called my name and they called his name and he was like he started crying and it was per him and it was back to playing the victim and he'd gone from this violent to this soft wee boy and I played along with it and didn't feel sorry for him this was the first day in my life I hadn't felt sorry for him and I played along with him I thought I'll be self-preservation here too I need to stay alive like for my family and my own kids and everything I need to stay alive here and I seen loads of blue lights outside I was like there's bound to be an ambulance there's bound you know like I'm safe now and I had said to him listen I know you're not well he was playing I'm not well and my head's away and I was like listen I know you're not well and I'll tell them you're not well and he was like well yeah and like started smiling and stood up and helped me up and said I know this is going to be the last time I ever see you again and opened the door to the place and said, I know this is going to be the last time I ever see you and I love you. And gave me a hug and then got arrested. And then I don't really remember a lot. I remember going to the ambulance, but I remember my mum. They wouldn't let her in. They wouldn't let her like, see me, wouldn't tell her anything, just told her to wait. And outside, I think it took six officers to restrain him. He had kicked off that much out the side. And at this point, there was my mum and stepdad there was my friend and her boyfriend, my ex and his mum, half of the village that I lived in. It was There were two ambulances, several police cars. It was now like an episode EastEnders. And my mum didn't know if I was alive or dead. And she just wanted to see me. And she, I remember hearing her saying, can I get in to see her? And she, they wouldn't let her in. And then whenever I did see her, 
all I could say was, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Because I felt like this was my fault. She nearly lost her daughter because of stupid choices over a stupid boy. Look, we'll take a wee minute here. Just have you wee tissues there? Crying on a podcast. No. <laughs> you have me crying, so don't worry about it. That was one of the most traumatic things I've ever listened to. And I fucking want to come over and hug you there. It, it, so hard for us to respond here we're not trained in this and it was so rough to listen to and what you went through and and the weirdest thing to me was you told that story and, and obviously then with your mum like I don't even know and I'm rambling here because it's so traumatic and so hard for me to process this but that the trauma of what just happened and like I want to ask you details but I don't really know whether I, I, I can stomach them I got so angry and sad and as you were telling that I could just stick the knife in his throat job and it was just getting it's so horrific and what you endured was absolutely awful and it's just a first hand experience of the violence and abuse and uh, obviously you were telling us when he came in he stabbed you in the head and then you endured so many and I just I don't I'm sorry if I'm asking you these because I want the police then obviously have came 45 minutes of absolute hell when you were obviously away to hospital and then we'll ask you more of, of of the situation with this man afterwards but what had happened then you'd went to hospital I went to hospital and a few days later I actually I went to hospital and I had to get my head stapled up I had to get head stapled um, x-rays from my nose so I need reconstructive surgery on my nose I've a deviated septum so I can't breathe out one nostril but I can breathe out the other had to have non-surgical rhinoplasty, which is like injections to reshape your nose to try and straighten it because it was it was bent. They can't operate on it at the minute because I've lost my sense of smell. So the nose had been hit that hard in your smell organs here. The nose has been hit that hard into my smell organ that I suffered damage. Um, and two years later, I still can't smell. I have no, can't perceive danger, can't enjoy perfumes, can't, you know, there's... The funny side, you always think if I lose a sense, I would like it to be my smell because you think you need your sight and your sound and stuff. But now a fire could go off in the next room. I have no idea. Gas could leak. No idea. My clutch went in the car last week. Hadn't a clue. Couldn't smell a thing. You know, there's that sense of now a lot of my sense of safety has been removed just with something as stupid as the sense of smell. There was the cosmetic impact of it. I was like, my whole face is out of shape which is why the non-surgical rhinoplasty to do in the meantime. Um, I had to get teeth fixed, uh, filled in, you know, like three teeth here. I head stapled, loads of wound closures, legs stitched, and I suffered 
ligament damage in this knee so it had gone through the collateral ligament um, and the stabbing had gone through the ligament to hit the bone and I couldn't walk, I couldn't, it then affected the muscle because I couldn't walk, I wasn't using the muscle and I ended up with a really skinny leg for weeks, like my knee just lost everything. Um, it was back to figuring out like walking again and in my head I was like this is okay Don't, and played it down. From the second I left hospital, I played it down and I kept saying to my mum, like, I'm sorry, but it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And the thing that'll stay with me forever is my mum. Like, I spoke, I have a friend and I remember we were talking one day and, like, some random World War Two or something. And out of the blue, he said to me, your mum has went through hell with you. Like, that woman's bound to worry about you. And I know that, like, just randomly out of the blue. And that woman has done nothing but worry about me before and since. I ain't going to stop you. You keep making it sound like you've done this to your mum. And I can't sit there and listen to you saying that it was you that done this. Because you didn't do this. No, and I know that now. You saying sorry for something that you didn't do is mad to me. Yeah. You didn't do this. This is absolutely 100% the doing of that devil. Mm. And that's just the end to, to me. Yeah. And I know psychologically this this is a lifetime trauma and stuff you work on. You're well aware. You know more than me. Um, But just sitting there listening to you saying sorry and, and that your mum, you didn't put your mum through hell you didn't do that and I know you may question the decisions in the lead up to all this and that's okay for people people sitting there be like well why did you continue and and, and why did you let and why did you meet him it's abuse you were abused you were manipulated you were coerced mm. that is what abuse is yep you are a victim yep and you very nearly died mm-hmm like, there's some point, and I really hope this here, and, and and you you say that when you forget, but I really hope when you speak about that, you do realise that you were the victim. Because that, your mum loves you, obviously, mm-hmm. but you, you, you got upset about your mum and you're saying sorry going out. That's upsetting to me because it's almost like you think that you don't have your mum. Yeah. There's going to be, there was obviously there's the build up and you're like, why didn't I then? And when we cut contact this is there. It too. It's easier to maintain, it's easier to stay on FaceTime than to be frightened of them landing at the door. And I remember even after it happened, I was like, this is what happens when you cut contact with people. And a lot of work I've done since then, a lot of educative work with domestic violence victims and stuff like I have absolutely armed myself with every bit of knowledge and every bit of work I could do to process how this happens the most dangerous time for a woman is when they leave the abusive partner it's not when they're living in the same house it's not when they're sleeping in bed it's when they leave and they aren't in the same place he can come at any time and this could never have been predicted and it could definitely not have been prevented like this was so random it was out of the blue there had been no lead up to it he was blocked. It's only whenever I got my phone back from police, they'd seized his evidence. And when I got it back from police, there were like 200 blocked messages in a 24-hour period. You can go in on a Samsung and check messages that have been blocked. And it was 
drifting in and out of I love you and I hate you and it was just a pattern. Well, you, you've obviously reverse studied this and, and started identifying exactly what it was, mm. for what it was. Yeah. You know, you spoke of the love bombing, the, 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 the you know, all the gestures, you now were and like, that happened to me, that happened to me, that happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know for me then, when you were telling us that, and that was the first point of contact for the police, I know it's it's easy for people to judge and they're like, why didn't you contact the police sooner? Why wasn't this boy? Why didn't you have an injunction? And, and I, I know that's simple for everybody yeah. else to make that and for people outside looking at that. But people listening to this and I really do think, Denise, uh, and, and you're so brave that to, to, to relive that trauma and tell us unbelievable and how strong you are to, to, to be here now and, and you'll be working through this and you know that you'll be working through yeah. but if it's one person that listens to this and are in the early steps of the manipulation and the abuse process and, and identifies that and says okay I need to break this cycle and I need to get help and Just there, leave. There, there is people out there and there's there's the likes of Women's Aid and, and places yeah. where we can mm-hmm. link in and liaison officers they can't help. And there's new laws with the police now too mm-hmm. that I've seen them uh, invoke there the other day where uh, a young girl was abused in the hotel and obviously she wasn't in a position to think, but they prosecuted. They continued to prosecute anyway. Yeah. And uh, that's only a new law, but there is things out there and, and there's so much, there's, as you were telling that story, there's so much me wanted to, like, you know, you know, if they could do this or they could do that, but it's, when you're being abused and that's it was all rational. Everything was unrational. When you look yeah. back at it now, yeah. it was all it was mad and it was yeah. crazy and, and you're and, and as a rational person and a well educated person, you, you, you can't sometimes you'd be like, you know, as you're saying this and why you haven't said it to people because it was just mad and it was all happening. And even the aftermath of it, so my life, as you would imagine, turned upside down every bit of my life changed, it affected me in every type of way and I moved down to my mum's to stay obviously couldn't stay in the same house but I then was engaged with a service and that service and GPs and GPs were referring me to psychology and it was you now have PTSD and then I began to have nightmares um, nightmares that linked to other parts of my life that were not even related so I started having flashbacks really bad and it became apparent that I had trauma of my own that had never been dealt with, had never caused me a problem, had never been an issue. And I was now dreaming about these things. And in my dream, it was him. And it was every part of my life. And the doctor was then, you know, like, this is complex PTSD. This is now stuff that's unprocessed. And they put me on a two and a half year waiting list for psychology, for one to one psychology. Meanwhile, if you're in prison, you get it immediately for free. That's the bit I sort of, I what? struggle with. I. So the perpetrator can see whoever they want straight away. The victim has to wait two and a half years. Ah, fuck me. Right. That's a whole different podcast because that is broken. But. It's making me angry. Oh. Listen to that. Like it makes me so cross. The system is so flawed. It's so 
even the support in place after. And I will say the police have been absolutely amazing, were amazing at the time. I had crime prevention. I had so many people provided me with all this safety gear, all this, you know, red alerts on me if a phone call came from, you know, all this safety stuff, even though he was away. They were all about maintaining my safety. But the other side of that was I wasn't processing this, like my mental health. At the time, I was like, this is fine, this isn't as bad. Like, stuff like this happens to people, people every day and was really playing it down. And my mum was like, it, this does not happen to people every day. Like, can you take a minute and just sort of think? So it happened in the September and I... You're so busy dealing with different agencies and different people and sorting stuff out and you've constant... Like, I had police solicitors, social workers, schools, everybody, so many people, so many professionals everybody to be in contact with to figure out what we're going to do how we're going to stay safe everything meanwhile he had the police for an interview and a solicitor didn't have the mess to unravel didn't have any sort of anything to worry about deal with while I took a massive massive blow financially had to change houses had to change cars had to drive my mum lives I don't know 30 odd miles away from me it was then an issue getting keeping my own life in my own town and kids going to school and stuff while living there and it was like daily commutes to do silly things and the blow I took financially I think I was just trying to manage everything at the time got Christmas over got to January and I didn't want to be here anymore I just thought like I can't life would have been easier for everybody around me and it was again it was that thinking of the people around me and I thought this has all been caused and I'm still here and it would be easier if this was gone out of everybody's life. And I, for the first time, got feelings of I don't really want to be here. I don't want to be part of this mess. And I sat and I processed and one day I just thought like, what the fuck has happened? And that was like three, four months later. And I never really like told everybody and done the whole brave face and this front and two I don't know, I'm really stubborn, really, really stubborn and really, really defiant and I always have been but I don't know whether it's this defiance in me. I didn't want anybody to know I was suffering or didn't want. There's times I'd be having a conversation with people and I'd be zoning out and I'd get really, really, I'm still quite funny in a social situation and people think, oh, she's a confident girl and they've no idea what was on behind closed doors. That's one thing I will say. It's the, the loudest, happiest people are suffering the most and I only know that because I have been that person so I didn't process it and then I started to process it and one day I was like lying in bed not getting up and not not dealing with people not speaking to people and all these feelings of worthlessness and one day I just thought you know what you beat it or it beats you and I thought I'm either going to grow from this or I'm going to sit down and take it either sit with it or you sit down for it and I thought if somebody's tried to take my life what better revenge than to live it I thought why would I let him continue to rob me of my life and I just I, st- I had this massive burst of energy and I could have run miles and that's how I deal with stress like I run I'm really active and I started I joined a gym and I started boxing and doing Muay Thai and see releasing that energy and being active and I thought I can either sit and cry for three hours in the house or I can go to the gym with my PT who like oh he was 
I hold that boy so much in my life. He was the best crack and like a real deep thinker. And the chats we had and we talked about this and talked about everything. And the mental and the physical gains I got from that. And I had initially started because my leg was like really sore and I thought I need to strengthen this leg and I need to learn to sort of work that again. And I ended up just channeling all the hurt, all the pain, everything in a positive way. And I started like writing, I'd be quite creative and like writing poetry and stuff and drawing and painting and doing all that again. And I think if I can overcome what happened to me and come out of that and say, I'm going to take something positive from this. This was not a positive experience, but I'm going to turn it into something positive and I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to become a better person and I'm going to improve every aspect of my life. If I can overcome that, anybody can overcome anything. I'm so glad to hear you saying that, you know, that somebody trying to take your life and you're going to harness it, you're going to live your life. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad to hear you saying that there, like it, it, and that you, that's what you're doing now. Yeah. You're, you're, you're taking all that crap and you're like, I'm not going to let that, you know, define you as such. Yeah. You're just going to keep on playing on yeah. and living your life to the full. Like no doubt about it, my life has been turned absolutely upside down and the person who I was like I've had to grieve as hard as it is I've had to grieve for him that was somebody I loved and I cared for and I couldn't explain to my family or friends at the time like not that I missed the person but I had experienced loss from him and that grieving for somebody that's still alive is a really really difficult thing that's harder than grieving for anybody I'd ever lost who had died it's far more difficult I was also grieving the loss of myself. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know my personality traits. I went through a stage of thinking, I don't want to care about my appearance because this is what got him in the first place. He saw me attracted to me and I thought, I'm not going to look the same. I don't want to, you know, be the same looking girl because I'll just attract another him. I went through a stage of not wanting to be kind and I thought my personality has kept me in that situation. Like I can't. But it's not me to be anything other than kind and I will forever devote my life to my life purpose which is healing others and helping others and I just don't have it in me to not do that. But I know now boundaries and givers need to set boundaries because takers never will. And my friend said that to me and that just resonates every time. Like somebody that's going to take from you will never, they'll never set a limit so you need to set a limit. And you can be a healer and you can be a kind and caring person but it doesn't need to be with somebody who's going to take from you. You come in today so timid and talking and you definitely, you wrote me, you're one of the strongest, bravest people. The grit you have is unbelievable. I I definitely, for a play to you, Denise, it has... It's hit me. I'm not even sure what I'm talking about. It's hit me because it's it's the trauma of it. But you know what's hit me more is how strong of a person you must be. That I'm not saying that you're you're nor side of it. I think there's so much of that that's still ongoing for you, and there's so much to work through. Yep. But to have that mindset now of I'm going to live my life and I am going to continue because one thing I would say would, and I'm glad it didn't. For such a caring person to not close that part of them off, because I think that would be the first thing that would be easy to do, yeah. is to stop being vulnerable and being trying to hurt or help people because that's that's how you get hurt. I think it's amazing. 
Um, I think it, it the need for, for how long ago? Sorry, and that's one thing. How long ago was this? How long has this been? Just going under on? two years. Two years. That incident. And it's not till you get this trial that you, you can really put this behind you. Mm-hmm. I hope the fuck the judge lets you tell him in the impact that the way you've explained it to us, because there's no fucking judge alive that wouldn't put that bastard away for as long as they can and mm-hmm. protect other people. That's not that that's a bullet to the head that needs that's not changing. That's devil, evil, evil personified. That's mm-hmm. never changing or never helping. I agree. And I hope it's shown. I hope they get to hear from or they will get to hear from me. And the fact that you had the strength to stand up to that and not roll over and plead it. Because look, none of us would have judged you for taking the plea deal and putting an end to this and, and, and moving not. on with your life. None of us would because I'm sure this is hanging over your head. I'll have the rest of my life to live now where people talk about him finishing the job. And my mum's convinced the day and hour he gets out, he's finding you. And if he could find me once before, like he can find me again. But in the meantime, I'm just going to continue on, live my life. I'll probably disappear. I'll do a disappearing act. There is a contingency plan for the day and hour he ever does get released. Like I will disappear. But in the meantime, what is the point? I, you know, I could take time off work in the sick. I could go and sit in the house and cry every day. But what quality of life will I have? And if I remove, we talk about I could have not been kind anymore. I could have became very hardened. And people talk about, oh, I've had a hard life. This is why I'm like this. I've had a hard life too. Didn't make me cruel. You could use drugs. You could use mental health. Never have I been around somebody under the influence of substances and they've lifted a knife. That's no excuse, you know, or mental health. That doesn't make you loads of people with mental health conditions. It doesn't make you want to stab somebody in the head. It doesn't make you want to take a life. You know, that was a choice. It was he was in full control of that. One hundred percent. It uh it just doesn't seem right to me in this world that you have to make contingency plans and that you have to even think about this hanging your mum is a prisoner to this guy. You're a prisoner to this guy. The thought that a victim should still be worried mm-hmm. while they're still in prison. But be worried about what's coming down to me just highlights such a broken system. This was in America. We wouldn't see this guy for over 20 years. You're left to kind of, there's a court date and then there's a court date and you're just kind of left to your own devices. You're left to sort your own contact with your GP. There's nobody ever turns around and thinks, I wonder is this person okay? And in fairness, when I went to see the GP and they referred me on, I sat and I was like, I'm absolutely fine. Like I'm going back to work. And I was trying to convince the lady psychologist that I was absolutely fine. And I was like, listen, worse happens to people. And she was not buying at all. She said, when you came in that door, you sat and you turned so your side was to the door and you wouldn't sit with your back to the door. And she helped me like very, very instantly. She said, you're hypervigilant. You're watching everything that's going on in here. You're, you know, it's your own safety. And I have now become an absolute expert in my own safety and other people's safety and there's things and something will happen my friends will say how did you even see that how do you even predict that and human behaviour is something like I can predict human behaviour now I know how people work 
I don't know, I think I've come through so much pain. And when you come through so much pain, all you want is peace. And I think now I'm just at a real state. I hate conflict. I hate anything to do with stuff like that. And you talk about being strong. I I still question whether I'm strong or whether I'm numb to it. I don't know whether it's out of craving peace. I don't know if I'm strong or numb. Um, But I think now it's just so much pain. Now I know true happiness. Now I know who I am, what I like in life, what I don't like in life. And so many blessings have come, lessons and blessings. But I think no matter how bad a situation, you can learn from it or you can grow from it. No matter what happens, if someone passes away, do they want you to sit and feel sorry for yourself for the rest of your life? Something happens, you nearly die. Should you sit and feel sorry for yourself for the rest of your life? And life would be a whole lot different for me and everybody around me if I had gone down. Talk about the victim mindset. And I'm not saying don't have sympathy. I'm just saying do not dwell on what happens to you. You can overcome it. You can overcome If I can overcome that, anybody can overcome anything. And that is the message. Like you can get over anything, through anything with the right mindset and just do so much work on yourself. I've learned so much about myself. And if you want to sit down and figure out what makes you tick, what makes you happy, where you go wrong, where you go right, and you get to just sit by yourself, cut out all the stuff. Ego means nothing. Possessions, material possessions mean nothing. You don't leave life with any of that stuff. It's all borrowed. What you leave is your service to others. Your kindness, your compassion, the person you were by your soul and spirit. You're a better person than me. And I'll just tell you that for nothing. I would be filled with vengeance and rage and and it would probably all consume me. But I really hope, Denise, and I am I for a play I really hope and I think you will. I think there's gonna be some people listening to this. And I think you might save some of them from having to go down what you had to go through mm-hmm. and I hope that bastard rots in hell forever. I hope you just you get some justice out of this whole thing that year alone 2021 and in that year in 12 months there were 7 deaths by stabbing 7 failed stabbings in Northern Ireland 28 attempted murders and 53 I think or 58 um, threats to kill by a knife and I just think, you think knife crime and you think of London, you think of gangs, you think all that. You don't actually think how many women have been murdered in their own homes in the last couple of years alone. You think of the news and how many women have been absolutely butchered like I was. I could have been the eighth that year. I, that's, that's actually what was going through my head there. You could have been the eighth person that died. Just another year. statistic. And out of that 20-something who were the attempted murders, one of them was me. It, uh, Jesus, that's, that's, that's heavy. That is mad. And I, uh, I just don't, there's so much anger from me from this year and, and I, listening to that. I get it. I'm sitting here. My jaw is so sore because I feel like I'm clenching as I was mm-hmm. listening to your story. And I even feel myself tense because I feel anger now. I've listened to that story. Anger is another thing. Anger is not an emotion, really. I would ha- I don't. I don't like conflict, anything. But I learned that anger can be healthy too because I got this sense of anger at him, and that's the only reason I went through the police statement. As soon as the police came to get a statement from me, as soon as I was well enough, 
Anger drove me to do that and it was very, very positive. Anger is what's kept me going through the court case. Anger is what's kept me keeping that anger has been very, very positive. And it's not anger as in I want to cause you harm. It's just you have removed my safety and I need, like my goal now is not punishment. It's not, it's just keep me as safe as possible and keep the general public as safe as possible. One thing I would say, and we're not always fair to the police, they they loathe these guys mm-hmm. and they do what they can yeah. and they be invested. Yeah. And you will have seen that, I would say. Mm-hmm. They're Absolutely. invested that he gets what's coming to him. Out of all the agencies that are there to support you through court cases, I'd say the police have been the debrief and stuff that happened like after there's so much they have done for me, you know, to maintain my safety and maintain me even thinking, believing that I'm safe. They've just constantly reassured and been on the phone for court cases and been, you know, and they've looked after me more than any other agency who's maybe put in place to do their job. And I have no, no complaints whatsoever about how the police handled this. Well, look, I, I, I just want to thank you. Denise, for coming up and telling that today. It cannot have been easy to relive that and tell us that. I know it was hard to hear and it will be very hard for people to listen to. And we probably, after this, me and Sean record a pre-warning for people yep. because it will be traumatic and it will yep. be traumatic to people that have suffered abuse. They'll they'll empathise They'll, they'll, as you said, vicariously, they'll, they will mm-hmm. be in that and back in their trauma with that. Yep. So we probably will do it, but I just want to thank you for coming up. I, like, this is what podcasting to, to me is about. Yeah. Is things that aren't easy for me to sit here and listen to that might help people. Yeah. And that is the plan to help somebody can listen to this and see and escape something violent, some violent relationship. It doesn't even have to be. A boyfriend, girlfriend relationship it could be in it could be a friendship, it could be anything. Because when this happened, I had maintained friendship with him and nothing else for the months leading up to it, and then cut contact. And I, even if somebody knows they're at the stage of cutting contact, do it in a really safe way, because you have no idea how resourceful somebody can be and how they can find you. Well, thanks, Denise. Denise, thank you very much. Thank you. That was mental.